0: Everybody loves McDonald's fries, so yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. In the car expelled two black lawmakers from tennessee's largest cities kicked out of their elected seats what's really behind that drastic move and what happens next we take a look at the bigger picture in tennessee and beyond tennessee legislature is
2: uh very vindictive then
3: sebastian county murdered my brother
1: killed in custody why some are saying that being locked up can turn into a death sentence We investigate shocking reports of negligence leading to inmate deaths. Plus, it
4: has my love of music, acting, and God all in one.
5: Holy Chloe Bailey. The Praise This star stops by to talk about relationships and new music as she hits Atlanta for the premiere of the new Will Packer
1: production. All of that tonight as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show everyone, I'm Mara Campo. The political drama playing out in Nashville as state representatives were expelled and then put back in the legislature. Kicked out of elected positions after leading protests for gun reform in a move that many are calling shockingly undemocratic. Well, now they've learned there's an effort to reinstate both representatives. Many are calling what happened to them racist as representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson are both black. They also happen to be very young, with both in their 20s, which is why what happened to them has implications far beyond Tennessee. The Tennessee Three, a nickname given to three Tennessee Democratic House members who Republican lawmakers accused of bringing disorder and dishonor to the House. Representative Justin Jones, 27 years old, from Nashville. Representative Justin Pearson, 28 years old, from Memphis. And Representative Gloria Johnson from Knoxville. The trio joined at the state capitol by large groups of mostly young people demanding gun reform from their state leadership following a recent school shooting in Nashville where six were killed, including three nine-year-old children. Days later, the Tennessee Three joined in protest against gun violence from the floor of the chamber, Jones and Pearson using a bullhorn as legislators instituted a recess. Republican leaders called for them to be expelled, but when the final votes were in, only two would lose their seats, Jones and Pearson.
2: So the Tennessee legislature is uh, very vindictive. They know the names of the people who are making the most noise.
1: A Gallup poll conducted in February before the Covenant school shooting shows that most Americans are unhappy with gun legislation. And generational divides are even stronger, with three in five Gen Zers saying our gun laws should be stricter, and a staggering 58% of Gen Zers supporting a ban on assault weapons altogether. Gen Z is just starting to make noise
0: in politics. I do not believe that we are embraced in the political space. I believe that we are taking up space and we are making ourselves uh, be heard.
1: Like Jones and Pearson, Chiyose is a former activist. He's now a New York City Council member in the 36th District, where he's also well-known for his youth-inspired activism.
0: And when I saw that my local elected official, my city council member, wasn't sharing the values Um, that I wanted to see within my representation of leadership, I took it upon myself to to take a leap of faith and and run for office myself.
1: Gen Z, which is the most diverse generation in the country, are also on track to be the most educated and tend to lean progressive. Young voters showed up big for the 2022 midterm elections with 36% voter turnout. That's a historic high compared to 20% in 2014.
0: I really do believe that in this this past midterm election, uh, Gen Z made themselves heard more than they ever have before.
1: We're also starting to see some of the first Gen Z politicians take office, like 25 year old U.S. Congressman Maxwell Frost from Florida and Representatives Jones and Pearson in Tennessee. Political power former Shelby County Commissioner Tammy Sawyer says makes some lawmakers in Tennessee very uncomfortable.
2: When you think about the fact that you have people who served um, all the way since the 1960s and the 1970s um, and now you have these, uh, in their mind, unruly, young black men, fiery orators, um, you know, they they can't silence them. They come from an activist tradition.
1: How would you describe the political backdrop, the political context in the state of Tennessee, in terms of racial demographics, representation, who holds power, what's the backdrop here? Black voters in Tennessee are heavily disenfranchised. Tennessee
2: ranks last in terms of access to democracy. But like a lot of states, our urban cores are where most of the Black people live and where most of the Democrats live. So that's Memphis and Nashville for our state. Justin Pearson represents Memphis. Uh, Justin Jones represents Nashville. And so most of the state is uh, Republican. Most of the power in our state house and Senate are Republican leaders. Republicans were able to draw themselves into a supermajority, giving, again, more power to smaller white populations in rural parts of Tennessee and taking away power from the more populous Black and now quickly growing uh, Latinx parts of uh, Nashville and Memphis. They took seats from us. They took seats from Black elected officials and and combined their districts in order to have less representation uh, at the state. And so um, very often we, Memphis and Nashville, find ourselves preempted by the state, meaning they redirect our funds, or if we pass laws that we think are beneficial to people in our cities, the state will do something to override that. Um, And so it's a really fraught uh, relationship between Memphis and Nashville and the state legislature. Um, And that's kind of where you get into both Jones and Pearson, who are former activists. No.
1: Why do you believe that they came in with this problem with some of their colleagues? So two activists who were really
2: outspoken, who had gotten national attention, um, then become the colleagues of these people who they've lobbied against and these people who they've called out for, you know, the treatment of Black and brown people in Tennessee. and, And they wanted them gone. Let's name names. Who were the loudest voices behind this? So you have Representative Farmer. You have House Speaker Cameron
1: Sexton. You know, he was the one who turned off the microphones. That's actually a really important context that I haven't heard because what I have seen reported is that part of the justification for the expulsion was that they were using bullhorns um, and that is not allowed. But you're saying that the reason they had to use bullhorns is because they were not given access to the microphones. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Why were they using bullhorns in the first place? In the House
2: was full of visitors that day. Parents and uh, students had come out in support of gun reform, following the Covenant school shooting. Because of that, they were given a bullhorn by a constituent and they continued to speak on the floor with the bullhorn. But this was during the recess. It was not during the actual order of the day because the speaker called a recess to cut their mics off. Um, But they chose to keep speaking with the bullhorn during the recess.
1: This week, the Nashville Council voted to temporarily put Jones back in his seat until the special election, and a Memphis panel voted unanimously to reinstate Pearson as well. And Tennessee Governor Bill Lee announced that he would sign an executive order aimed at strengthening background checks for firearm purchases. Given all of that, what message was this body sending by expelling them, just the two of them? The message that the body sent to
2: Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, and I think to all Black Tennesseans is you're not equal, your voice does not
1: matter. Why do you think they did not expel the third legislator as well?
2: She's a white woman, she didn't hold the bullhorn.
1: What do you think happens now?
2: These uh, Republicans have made uh, living martyrs out of Justin Jones and uh, Justin Pearson. Um, We'll never forget their names. What I do think the impact can be is that other people will be inspired to speak out. Very often, Democrats in Tennessee think they've got to play it safe so that they can get some concessions. Well, now we see that we're in a whole different ballgame. We are in, you know, back to these days where there there are no concessions. There is no middle ground. So if there's only 26 of you at the state level and you never will have the majority, why not make a little noise? Why not make some good trouble? That's what both Justins are doing here, right? They're saying, hey, I know I'm not gonna win this vote, but you're gonna hear what I have to say about this gun reform.
1: When we come back, is this just the beginning of a massive political shift as we see more young leaders take office? We'll get into it.
4: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or
3: use your McDonald's bag as a placemat,
4: then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really
3: long
0: drive.
3: Bada ba At participating McDonald's.
0: We said, we want a ban on assault weapons. They said, we're going to assault democracy. Yeah. 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 Shameful, shameful. One thing we won't do is ever quit. We will never quit. We will never quit.
1: Those are Tennessee reps Justin Jones and Justin Pearson vowing to keep fighting. We're gonna take a deeper dive now into the political showdown in Tennessee. What does the expulsion of two Gen Z lawmakers say about Gen Z's political future and how they're changing the game? Well, joining me now to get into it, Whitley Yates, Republican strategist, Anya Dillard, founder of The Next Gen Come Up, and here in studio, Sid King, Gen Z activist. I appreciate you all for being here. Let's get right to it. So Willie, I want to start with you. This this was your reaction on Twitter when the news of this expulsion broke. You said, quote, they deserve to be reprimanded and should not be surprised at all this is happening. So based on that being your initial reaction, why do you think that this expulsion was appropriate?
6: So I had to really look at some unbiased sources about what actually happened. I'm a firm believer of the First Amendment rights and their right to protest anything. However, in the middle of session, when they are legislators that are supposed to be participating in the session, to come and beer that session, to get on bullhorns and to lead an all-out revolt against their own legislative session, to me, is out of decorum. When you run for office and you put yourself in a position, such as a legislator, you have to not only understand the rules, but leverage your position and power so that other voices can be heard. And I don't think that that's what they did at all.
1: But there is a question of degree of punishment, right? So I just want to read something that was said in 2019 uh, by the uh, House Speaker. So this is a Republican. This was when another member of the House, there was an attempt to expel them. And this was his reaction to that attempt, which was successfully killed. He said, quote, you have to balance the will of the voters and overturning the will of the voters. So in this case, we're talking about overturning the will of about 140,000 voters for rules that were broken. Do you think the punishment fits the crime?
6: I don't think that the punishment does fit the crime. I think that it is a little harsh and they are making an example out of these legislators in particular. And so I think a censorship or removal from committees would have sufficed. However, I do think that it's harsh, but let it not be known that they should be reprimanded for how they conducted business, commandeered the meeting and took over the entire session.
1: Anya, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about the fact uh, about race and the role of race um, in what happened. And, of course, that's relevant and that is absolutely important to talk about. But another aspect here is generational. You know, these are two very young members of legislature. They were newly elected um, and they really represent a lot of ways the voice of Gen Z, the, the, the politicians that we are going to see coming. Do you think that this was in some ways an effort to silence young voices by the old guard? I think
7: that there's so much to be said about that especially being that you know gun violence and gun reform has been an issue that young people have been rallying for for decades now and I think that You know, the intersection of race is also extremely important, but I think that the war that is currently happening on young people and the way that our legislators are not taking our opinions and our experiences into account when it comes to the urgency associated with the fight for gun reform speaks volumes, and I think that, you know, this instance with the Tennessee Three is in that exact same boat. So it's really important that people start talking about the importance of intergenerational dialogues when things like this happen, and I think that, you know, the courage and bravery that it takes for young people to even involve themselves in the socio political space is something that i talk about all the time and it's just you know really really beneficial for young people to be able to see displays of courage such as you know congressman pearson and congressman um johnson's even Um, and I think that the Tennessee Three have done a really great job of bringing the opinions of young people back to the forefront and proving that we deserve
1: to be at the table during these conversations as well. I do want to get sit-in on the conversation. You know, Anya brings up the the question of of gun reform, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is the issue that sparked the protest that then led to the expulsion. Mm -hmm. You guys are really the first generation that has never known life without school shootings, without mass public shootings. How do you think that you're gonna change the conversation around gun reform?
0: I think it's exactly what was just said, intergenerational conversations. And when I have these conversations in general, I like to think I'm talking to a grandparent on the couch to a child child that's also sitting there. There's no way that we can address the future without understanding the foundation, but not trying to make the foundation that was laid be the set in stone for our future. So yes, we understand that there's a way that things go inside of Congress, but is that more important than the message that's trying to be stated within Congress? And one thing that we're starting to learn about Gen Z is we don't have a face of somebody who's the face of our movements. So you can shoot the messenger, but the message won't be killed. So it's important that we have these conversations that we can sit down and understand why somebody would even sit in Congress and try to do something like this and and think about why they would do it more than reprimanding them. So I can understand how you can see this as something that's disrespectful to democracy, but democracy is the people electing who they would like to speak for them inside of office, and that's what we saw happen. And we saw the people who are supposedly for democracy kick them out.
6: It's not an intergenerational conversation. That's the truth. The truth is they were shouting and yelling and on bullhorns. There was no conversation being had. And I'm actually quite interested to see what they feel that these two legislators, what their actual impact was. Like the optics of what's happening is garnering more reaction than the impact. We are still not at a place in Tennessee where we have mitigated this issue, right? And so now they're gaining political prominence over the lives of six people and individuals who were the actual victims? They are now the victims. The story is about them. Vice President Kamala is coming to visit them, and not the families of those impacted. And so it's like style over substance. It looks good. He sounds like MLK. I guess it's 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 a great soundbite. But what is the impact that they're having with their leadership? And this was not a conversation. It was it was a lambasting of what of one through a disagreement of of more than one. I guess.
1: And, and Anya, when it comes to style, so to speak, because we're just starting to see Gen Z politicians enter office. You know, we have Max Frost, who's the first Gen Z uh, Congressman in the U.S. Congress. We have these two representatives who are Gen Z as well. What would you describe as the the style of political engagement? No group is a monolith, but based on what you see with your peers and in your work, what would you describe as the style of political engagement for Gen Z?
7: I think that uh, a misconception about Gen Z, especially when it comes to, you know, progressives, Gen Z activists, is that when something is not being taken into consideration, whether it be at the legislative level or even socially, um, within our movements that our immediate go to is these radical displays of civil disobedience. And contrary to popular belief, that's really not true. Gen Zers have been at the front of the picket line when it comes to trying to actually delegate and build relationships with our elected officials so that the discussions are the introduction to how issues can be remedied and how things like laws and bills can be passed to prevent things like this from continuing. It's when we feel that the people who have been elected or the people who have been put in place to represent us and to uphold our democratic values are simply not moving on the issues that we are continually bringing to the front of the picket line. And because optics work, that's why you see these these actions of civil disobedience take place, even in, you know legislative bodies as prestigious as the House. So you have to consider, you know, just like my colleague just said, the causation of these things and the trickle-down effect that issues can have when they are not taken into account and when they are not moved on. We're not saying that gun violence is an issue that has not been talked about. We are saying we're not seeing the protocols. We're not seeing the legislation. We're not seeing the laws. And we are continuing to see these mass shootings and these deaths take place.
1: But if we zoom out a little bit more to the impact that we can expect from Gen Z, what we know now is that this is one of the most diverse generations ever. And they are on track to be one of the most educated generations ever. We see a very progressive generation. Whitley, how do you think that's going to affect the future of conservatism? I'm going to be
6: honest. I think it's actually going to propel the future of conservatives. As we've seen, specifically when it comes to Black conservatives, there's a growing number, and you're seeing the trends change. And I think the reason is because the progressives are too far left. They have completely eradicated what most would consume or deem as normal, the level of fluidity in which they are Principled or create their platforms is always and consistently changing. And so in a world where you have some progressives advocating that we need to, you know, give five-year-olds and six-year-olds drugs to transition them into, into different genders, right, there is going to be a moderate middle that's like, I don't agree with those things. And what's going to end up happening is the farther that they push left, the more people are going to come to the center. And that's where I think, like, more particularly, like, black conservatives are going to be able to rise up.
1: Whitley, where are they giving drugs to five- and six-year-olds to help them transition their gender?
6: They are definitely giving drugs to five- and six-year-olds. They're giving hormonal therapies. In Indiana here, we just passed a law to stop that um, so that kids are not able to receive any types of drugs. But it's definitely happening all around this country, specifically in places like California, where I used to live.
0: But I think what we've seen with this Gen, Gen Z and this uh, n- new spring to say what's right and to really educate themselves is what we'll see is, is is a better democracy. Because the more we educate ourselves and put less importance on strictly entertainment when it comes to our politics, I think the better future that we'll see, yeah.
1: Well, you guys are all the future of politics. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you in the years to come. Thank you to all my guests for being here. Sid, Whitley, Anya, we really appreciate your time. Uh, When we come back, we are going to switch gears. Why are so many people dying in prison? A shocking new lawsuit may have some answers.
3: Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster?
0: Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game-changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips.
3: So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash
0: Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. There are 52 beds for mentally ill inmates, all in constant use. And in this unit, They're confined for 23 hours a day.
1: Welcome back. Getting arrested shouldn't be a death sentence, but for many who find themselves behind bars, it is. Each year, thousands of people die in jails and prisons, often because of shocking medical neglect. The family of Larry Price Jr. says that's exactly what happened to him, claiming that he was left in his cell to starve to death, essentially killed in custody. We should warn you that the details of his case are very disturbing.
3: Sebastian County murdered my brother.
1: 51-year-old Larry Price Jr. was living on the streets in 2020 when he walked into a Fort Smith, Arkansas police station, verbally threatened officers, and mimicked shooting a gun with his fingers.
3: He had a mental health crisis. The police knew him. They knew him very well. He went in there and he um, cried for help. Instead, he he was thrown in jail and, and the key was thrown away with him.
1: Price, who suffered from severe schizophrenia, was locked up for a felony charge of making terroristic threats, his bail set at $1,000. To be released, he would have needed to post 10%, just $100.
3: I didn't know anything about a $1,000 bond until it was actually reported in the newspaper multiple times. My aunt went down there. They were turned away. When we called, they said that Larry had to put his name on the list for us to make any contact with him. My brother he memorized my phone number. He knew my aunt's phone number. No one called us.
1: No calls until the worst call imaginable. One year later, Larry was found dead in his cell, emaciated. The cause of death, acute dehydration and malnutrition. Essentially, he'd starved to death.
3: They said that he was given food daily. But I'm like, well, how do you let someone diminish from 185 pounds to 121 pounds. I mean, you're telling me that he is psychotic. He's eating his feces and and drinking his urine. Why are you still allowing him to be there?
1: We reached out to the attorneys representing the health clinic inside the Sebastian County Jail, but never heard back. Larry's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit after learning the circumstances of his death. One of the most damning revelations a paper trail in the form of prison logs. Price family attorney, Hank Balson, says they have proof Mr. Price died from extreme neglect.
8: When Larry was in segregation, the rule was that the guards were supposed to do a visual check on him at least every 15 minutes. We received the log reports of each of those 15-minute checks over 4,000 times. In the last 48 hours of Larry's life, when he is 48 hours dying from dehydration and malnutrition, they continued to enter inmate and cell okay. Even after Larry was taken to the hospital and even after he was pronounced dead, there are still multiple entries in the security check log inmate and cell okay. I have never seen anything like that. It wasn't just one guard who was making these entries. This was a system wide problem.
3: I mean, the individual's been pronounced dead in the cell, and you're still checking he's okay on a sheet. What kind of culture is that? There's obviously a lack of empathy, a lack of common sense, a lack of training for sure. And the healthcare, it's devastating that this person deteriorated the way they did.
5: Prisoners argue their healthcare is so bad within the Arizona Department of Corrections, rehabilitation and re-entry, it violates their constitutional rights.
1: Larry's story, just one of many across the country, claiming that blatant medical neglect killed someone in jail or prison.
9: Alarming symptoms in a young man of possible testicular cancer were ignored and ultimately the patient
1: passed away. Last year, the advocacy group Vera that works to end mass incarceration reported within state-run correctional facilities, 20% of incarcerated people with a persistent medical condition go without the care they need. In local jails, that number jumps to a shocking 68%. Many of those people haven't even been convicted of a crime, but they're being held on bail while they wait for their trial. Richard Forbus, vice president at the National Commission on Correctional Health says the rise of the prison population since the pandemic, plus a dramatic drop in staff, is making an already strained system even weaker.
3: Some facilities are seeing vacancy factors of 40-50% on their staffing when it comes to health care and actually when it comes to custody as well. So both of those factors combined, they're devastating when you're trying to provide a level of care. Well, correctional health care is in need of great people.
0: I think they do need to get their treatment in a medical facility.
1: It's a challenge captured in the documentary series, Real Stories, where cameras went inside a Texas prison for a week to witness firsthand what inmates and staff face on a daily basis.
0: Jail staff supervise the cells, and a separate medical team handled the inmates' mental health treatment. This environment is not going to get them the help that they need.
1: Larry Price's family hopes his tragic end sparks enough outrage to help others who are still suffering behind bars.
3: They knew Larry Price. They just wanted to dispose of Larry Price. That's what it was. They got tired of dealing with Larry Price. This is a small, close-knit town. They wanted to dispose of him. And that's exactly what they did. I'm going after accountability. That is big on my list. We want to see reform.
1: Given that Black men and women are far more likely to be locked up than other groups, how do we address this problem for our community? Joining me now with her take, Chaplain Dr. Victoria A. Phillips, founder and CEO of Visionary V Ministries, a criminal justice advocacy organization. Dr. V, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, So I wanna start with a fact that I actually found to be quite shocking. According to the ACLU, the United States is the only democracy in the world with no independent body to monitor prison conditions and enforce standards of health and safety. So how do we move forward to address this problem? What system changes need to take place? I believe it all starts with accountability in the local
10: government. Systems need to start with how we respond to the community needs. Why aren't people able to um, access adequate resources before even coming into contact with the criminal legal system? So I believe that if we want to address what's going on in our prisons, we
1: absolutely have to start at home in our community. You've touched upon something that's really key, which is the appropriate treatment and care of those who are suffering from some type of mental illness or mental health crisis at the time that they are incarcerated. You know, we will have just come out of a story of a tape piece um, of a man who was suffering from a severe mental illness, and he ended up dying um, while he was uh, in custody. So how do we adequately address Address the needs of mentally ill men and women who are incarcerated, or should they even be in prisons and jails? What is the proper way to handle this massive problem?
10: One of the bills right now is treatment, not jail in New York State. And even last year in New York City Department of Corrections, we had a Mr. Carter die less than 48 hours of entering the system. And I highlight him because. Every government agency failed him. He was in hospitals, they failed him at discharge. He was in the shelter system, they failed him at intake. The judge failed him when they when they remanded him. Intake in Department of Corrections failed him. And the hospital services, CHS Correctional Health Services, failed that man because if they had properly done an assessment within the 48 hours that he had arrived on Rikers Island, they would have been able to save his life. So when we talk about solutions, where are we really able to hold ourselves accountable to put a stop to how easy it is to cycle throughout systems and be ignored?
1: So what type of accountability would you like to see?
10: Well, for starters, we can start with making sure that the those who need help have the help. And the community have respite senses. Respite senses is places where you can go if you have a mental health concern before actually being hospitalized. It's such a domino effect of where we can start. Mr. Carter needed housing. You know, poverty should not be a crime. You know, we do realize poverty kills in America because that in itself is a domino effect on how someone can become into contact with the criminal legal system. So, accountability in our local government and our city council with the certain bills. For example, we have a bill in city council here in New York, intro 549, to end solitary confinement. What I know from working behind the walls is that most people who have a mental health concern end up in solitary confinement because correctional officers are not medical staff. One out of five New Yorkers
1: has a mental health concern. Why isn't this a public health crisis? Well, you also raise a great point about corrections officers not being medically trained personnel, and I think they would actually make that point as well. They would say, we don't have the staffing to provide medical care, and we also don't have the training to provide medical care. So how do you address that problem? Is it a matter of increasing staffing, increasing medical personnel, having medically trained personnel uh, more involved in the process beyond mental illness? How do you think we need to tackle the problem when it comes to medical negligence, medical emergencies, other cases of neglect, where people end up dying? Working behind correctional walls
10: and city uh, jails and prisons throughout the state, I know for a fact that we, need less correction officers and more service providers in those settings that can properly deal with the issues that come into those settings. So there are so many traumas that we deal with as a community on a daily basis that there aren't adequate resources to go to. And then you end up behind correctional walls, and we expect correctional officers to be the social worker, to be the nurse, to become the therapist, to be the babysitter, and all that they're, they're
1: supposed to be is for care, custody, and control. Such great points and such a layered and complicated problem. Dr. V, thank you so much for your perspective on this issue. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. And we've got a lot more Revolt Black News coming up after the break. Don't go anywhere.
0: You believe that for real? Believe what? All the stuff you were saying about God. Everything going to be all right.
4: Honestly, I don't really know. My cousin's always like, Isaiah says, look for a sign from the
1: Lord, and everything's going to be all right.
8: Who's Isaiah?
4: I don't know, some dude in the Bible.
1: That's Chloe Bailey and Quavo talking spirituality, the two co-starring in the new faith-based film Praise This. Kennedy is here, and Kennedy, you just spoke with them and a lot of the cast. Yes, I did, Mara. I was at the Atlanta premiere of the
5: film from the mind of producer Will Packer, who told me why now is the right time to get your praise on. about Praise This. I mean, it's set in Atlanta in the world's competitive choir. Why this movie right now?
0: This is a movie that, whether you've been to church every Sunday or can't remember one Bible verse, the whole point of this movie is that I wanted to make it for people that have lost their way, that maybe need a little bit of a reminder to reconnect with their faith.
5: Mega producer Will Packer tapping into the Gen Z space with Praise This. When I joined the cast on the red carpet, it was all about that Praise Team experience. So Crystal, Praise This Is Set in Atlanta in the world of competitive choirs. Were you ever in the choir growing up? And if so, what was that experience like?
9: I was, my mother put me in the choir at age five and um, I was singing all the way until I stopped singing in the choir. Yeah, (laughs) until I kinda got into college and then I was
5: doing my own thing. Co-star Tristan Mack Wilds is not only praising this moment for the movie, but also the latest addition to his family with wife, Christina. Talk to me about being a girl dad. What's the best part?
0: Woo! It's, um, you know what? It's made me a softer person, yeah. realizing, you know, even me as a man, uh, things that I kind of, uh, the shells that I've had to put up as a man just through my life. Yeah, Yeah, you start to realize that some of that has to be taken off. To, to cater to a girl the proper way.
5: Did you ever spend time in the choir when you were growing up? My sisters and I, we were the choir. Right. So you know, and
10: my brother can't forget Michael because there were six of us. So we were the choir. And one year we entered the Kentucky Fried Chicken Gospel Choir competition. We didn't win, but we came in like second though. But it was like way back in the day. I don't even think they have it anymore. But we did that though.
5: We did. We, we did that. Don't
0: your voice is nice. Why don't you come down to the studio?
5: The girl at the center of the film is Chloe Bailey, who stars as an up-and-coming singer who finds success through the gospel experience.
4: I was so excited because it has my love of music, acting, and God—all in one. So I was like, "Ooh, this is the role for me." A role that had her going toe to
5: toe with Quavo. Not bad for Chloe, who burst on the scene as one half of the singing duo Chloe and Halle. We first were introduced to Chloe when she was about 15 years
8: old, when we saw her and Halle on YouTube making incredible covers and getting Beyoncé's
5: attention. But now it's been almost a decade. She's grown up. She's become a woman. Daily Variety's Angelique Jackson told me that Chloe is among the handful of modern day Gen Z stars to navigate the Hollywood spotlight.
8: An added element, maybe even a speed bump to Chloe's success, is the idea that she's having to navigate all of this as a young black woman. There's so much added spotlight, added critique, added uh, pressure on her to figure it out and figure it out the right way.
5: While in Atlanta, Chloe joined me and the co host of Black Girl Stuff to talk about the film and more. What's still on your list or on your vision board that you're mm-hmm. like, I have to check this off yeah. in the coming years?
4: Well, I really want to win an EGOT, you know, the Emmy, yes. Grammy, Oscar, the Tony. Tony. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's like forward. a long-term
5: goal, but mm-hmm. I know
4: like if I keep my eye on the prize, that will be another one I get to
5: as she strives for her EGOT goals, Chloe is also gaining praise for her album In Pieces. An album title that came about after facing a challenging time in her life for her, the healing is in
4: the music. It's the mask. So when people come closer, that's when they'll see the little cracks Mm -hmm. of how we have glued ourselves back together when we've been broken down time and time again. So that's why I titled the album in pieces because the three years that I took to create it, I was going through some of the hardest times in my entire life. And she is more than good enough.
5: Chloe knows where her strength of a woman mentality comes from, her
4: faith. I have always really held on tight to God because that's what's been keeping me stable. I remember when I lost a really near and dear close family member a couple years ago that really struck home, and that was the first time I ever questioned God like, why take away someone so close mm-hmm. to me and close in age? I didn't understand it, but as Uh, you know, time went by, I learned to accept it. And I learned that God's timing and God's plan is better than anything I could ever come up with. And no matter how much I try to control things or control life, it won't work out as well as God's plan will.
5: Now to another type of praise that is falling on HBO's two-time Emmy-winning hit, a black lady sketch show, which is back. And the ladies are serving up laughter and picking up the torch to honor other black female comedians who paved the way for this groundbreaking show. I
9: okay, tassels. Oh, she, oh damn, I'm ashy? No, I was saying. Ooh,
1: good looking. Out, Nadia. Ooh, your toe, your
5: toe, your How much do you owe to black variety shows that came before now, like Flip Wilson okay. or In Living Color?
9: OK, look at you bring up Luke <laughs> Wilson. You better work. You better know your history. <laughs> um, yes, Luke Wilson. Um, Richard Pryor had a variety show in yeah. Living Color, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone, I'm so inspired um, by what Jordan and Keegan did on mm-hmm. Mad TV, of course, by Kim Buell and Dave Chappelle. I mean, like, all of these people have left an indelible mark on this business, and most of them largely Black men, right? But mm-hmm. but Takia and Kim and, like, the Black women who came through Living Color and, like, Ellen on SNL. Like, I think about the few black women. Wanda Sykes has, you know, Mm -hmm. had a variety show. Like, I think about what they contributed and those rare moments that we got with them and to know that we've been doing it for four seasons. That being said, we're being talked about in those conversations, and that's wild to me.
5: A Black lady sketch show creator Robin Thede will take the accolades along with her flowers. As the first Black woman head writer of a late night talk show, she found a stride four seasons into the HBO hit, all while standing on the shoulders of the rare Black female comedians to command and run a sketch show.
9: What comics have had the greatest impact on you personally? You know what's crazy, Kennedy? I don't know if you saw this, it went viral yesterday. I cried on The View, thanking Be Goldberg. I said I've been waiting my whole life to tell her thank you. She showed me that Black women can play characters. I saw her Broadway show on television in the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. I was a tiny child, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it left a lasting impression on me. I also got to thank Kim Wayans. I mean, mm-hmm. speaking of giving flowers, like I got to thank her when she came on our show. And she told me she was proud of me. And it was like, to hear that and understand that responsibility of what those women meant to me, it's an honor that I could possibly even be that to one little black girl who wants to get into comedy, let yeah. alone a generation. What
8: this show is doing is celebrating that. It's celebrating our opportunity to
5: be our fullest selves all the time and in any space possible. Daily Variety's Angelique Jackson says this type of series is a game changer as the excellence of black women is on display. While a Black Lady Sketch Show is really the
8: first of its kind, it is also standing on the shoulders of shows like In Living Color, for example. You know, it's not just Saturday Night Live out there that has been around for decades. In Living Color
5: was a huge and important institution.
3: I'm a feminist. You're a what? Feminist. Ha!
5: This season is packed with guest stars, from Debra Wilson and Issa Rae to Amarion and Tracy Ellis Ross, to name a few.
9: We reserve this space from 3.15 to 4 o'clock. This looked like twelve.
5: Four for castmates Sky Townsend and Gabrielle Dennis. It's off the chain.
9: I'm always excited when we find out who watches the show and wants to come in and play. It's like Gabrielle remembers we met Bobby Brown at a concert, and he's like, "Yeah, I love you guys' the show. We, I, you know, I come and do it." And then, lo and behold, season four, he's on it. So. Man, I, I really can't even think right now. I, I feel like we've had so many guest stars that I couldn't even imagine working with in my wildest dreams. So whoever wants to come play, I feel like it's it's you know it's open. I don't know. I
5: have to ask you guys because you really are paving the way for black women in sketch comedy. Who were some of your guys' idols? One of my favorites
6: is Whoopi Goldberg,
5: yeah. you know, Sister Act, Jumpin' Jack Flash, like um mm-hmm. just seeing
9: her be this Non-stereotypical, she didn't fit in a box, she was her own thing. Maya Rudolph was who I saw, and I was like, what a strange lady.
0: Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: back. If there's one thing we love here at Revolt Black News, it is black excellence. Astronaut Victor Glover is definitely raising the bar there. NASA just announcing that he is the first black man headed to the moon. Check out that story on our Instagram page, at Revolt Black News, where we also share why the movie Boys in the Hood is so important to him. Don't want to miss that. That wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us, not just on Instagram, but Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone.